The Murthy Law Firm has been clarifying U.S. immigration laws and procedures for foreign nationals since 1994. Teleconferences and podcasts were added to the resources available online in 2012. We are happy to offer this free service. Please listen to copyright information and restrictions at the end of this recording. Now, we are pleased to introduce attorney Sheila Murthy. Good afternoon. This is Sheila Murthy, President and CEO of the Murthy Law Firm. Welcome to today's teleconference where we're going to discuss the latest updates on the H-1B process, H-4s and H-4 EADs. Joining me for today's teleconference are two of my esteemed colleagues at the Murthy Law Firm, Timothy Sachs and Ali Terry, who focus on H-1B non-immigrant issues. Uh, by the way, if somebody says, we haven't heard of Timothy, it's because he goes by TJ Farmley within the firm. Um, their focus is exclusively on H-1B and non-immigrant related issues. And so we really want to go over what are the changes, what we've been seeing with the landscape, and you know how we can all try to improve the H-1B approval, whether as an employer or as the individual going through the process. Um, for those who are asking, of course, we all know that there was a change in the administration earlier in January of this year in 2021. And so the immigration landscape has significantly changed with the, with the coming in of the Biden administration. We have seen changes in policies and adjudication processes and uh, overall in the approach towards immigrants, immigration, and particularly H-1B employment-based kinds of processes. All of these have been occurring while the COVID-19 pandemic continues to impact countries throughout the world, though the good news for us here in the U.S., of course, is that it looks like the pandemic rates are plummeting. Of the new fiscal year in October for USCIS, let's now look at a deeper dive at what we're seeing in terms of the current state of affairs with respect to H-1B and H-4 EADs. Uh, and H-4 processing. So, TJ, I'm inviting you to speak a little bit about what's going on right now in terms of policies. Right. So for the last couple months, maybe even a little bit longer than that, certainly since the Biden administration took power um, earlier this year, it's been relatively consistent in terms of the adjudications that we've seen um, and it, it's been a, a positive consistency. Um, in, in other words, um, it's, it's probably it's been more of a benefit to the H-1B employees and the H-1B employers. Now, how that continues, we, we really don't know. Um, one other additional thing that we've you know that we've seen it, it happened last year on the Trump administration. It's happened again this year um, that they conducted a second lottery. Um, now, this is the second year with the registration system, and USCIS has conducted, you know, they, they selected um, their petitions under the first round, and they didn't get enough filings um, in that first round or uh, enough approvals, so they've selected additional uh, H-1Bs, and they have between August 2nd and actually today, November 3rd, 2021, to submit their um, second lottery case. So that's definitely... A, a, a huge benefit that, that in the past you really didn't see. Once the lottery was was completed, we never saw USS coming back and, and, and selecting more cases. That's certainly a, a benefit. Um, so, but in the coming months now, you can start to see, expect to see maybe some requests for evidence, but hopefully more approvals um, 
in, in you know, the next coming months. Sounds great, and thank you, TJ. And I think part of the reason potentially could be because of the pandemic, some employers or a lot of people, it's difficult to predict what, you know, where the person will work, what the project the person will work on, you know, six or eight months or a year before the person, six, eight months before the person is ready to start working from October onwards. So I think a lot of employers either withdrew or did not proceed, even though they did the pre-registration. Anyway, right. so let's go next. Yeah, so that might be the reason. So uh, let's jump next to Ali. Ali, can you tell us what potentially could happen? What can we see? If an RFE is issued, because that's like the biggest concern for employers and employees in general. Absolutely. So I would say RFEs are still fairly common. It's not quite as of an insanity, I would say, as it was during the Trump administration there for a while. But they are still fairly common. Um, in the vein of cap petitions, uh, one common RFEs with those types of petitions will be questions on maintenance of F1 student status. Uh, the government loves to ask about that, especially when the student was participating in CPT. Uh, the government often will ask that they prove that the CPT was valid, uh, typically saying you did this as soon as you began the program, so prove to us that the CPT is integral and required by the program of study. Uh, they also will often ask about whether the beneficiary is participating in a full course of study. This usually means prove to us that this person is attending classes in person, uh, they're actually completing everything they're supposed to complete. For the in-person aspect, um, it's still in the USCIS template, but we've been providing things about, hey, look, it's COVID-19, that requirement's been kind of lifted for the time being. Um, but they're still asking about it. So it's still an issue that comes up. Wonderful. Thank you. Yes, absolutely. And the other, the most common RFC that I've been hearing about while doing my consultations is, of course, on this lack of specialty occupation, uh, because that's at the core and the fundamental for every H-1B is for the employer to establish and the employer to meet the legal and statutory criteria that the position and the job duties are in fact in a specialty occupation requiring at the minimum a bachelor's degree or higher to perform the complex and specialized tasks, special, you know, the, the, the job duties. So the service, the USCIS is requesting the employer to provide evidence to support the fact that the position is one that requires the bachelor's degree in a specific specialty. A lot of times if the person has a different engineering degree than, let's say, mechanical engineering, but the job is in computer science, then they say, whoa, 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 is this a specialty occupation? Um, of course, in the recent, we have seen that this was, in fact, tied, tied to the concept of the level one wage, and so that such positions are, in fact, not in a specialty occupation. The level one issue, USCIS would, would frequently say that, you know, if, if you're filing a case an H-1B petition at a wage level one, well, how can that be a special? How can that be such a complex job at an entry-level wage? And we saw back in, uh, it was probably about 2017, if you file a case with an LCA with a wage level one, you're going to get a special occupation, questioning whether a level one is a, is a specialty occupation job, and 60-some percent of the cases were being denied. However, recently, that really has gone down, and, and level one really isn't an issue anymore. It's more going to the complexity of the job, not the wage level you select, but certainly the higher the wage level, the, 
the more complex the job is, is going to seem, right? Um, and then another thing we've seen, kind of similar to the level one, is in the past, if you filed with an occupational classification on the LCA of a computer systems analyst, then USCIS was saying, well, this, this occupational classification is, is not a specialty occupation. It's not one that requires at least a bachelor's degree in a specific field of study. Um, but we've, we, it, it's still a, a, you know, a, a more risky occupational classification to use, but we've seen the incidence of RFEs and denials using that classification go down significantly. Um, so that's just another benefit that we've really seen in the last couple months. Now, people stop using that occupational classification, so it's hard to say, you know, people don't just pick up right again and start using them again because they're worried about the denial. So it's a slow coming to, to see this, this change when people slowly come back to using level one or using the computer systems analyst occupational classification. Okay, thank you, TJ. Uh, are we seeing any RFEs on the employer-employee relationship, Ali? Generally, no. So since the change in policy last summer, uh, reverting back to kind of the old policy that said you don't have to provide all this extra documentation, we're not really seeing them like we used to. Uh, we used to get them all the time. We were scrounging to get contracts and letters and all of this documentation. So for the most part, we're not seeing them. I think we've seen like less than 10 uh, every once in a while, one will be issued, but really they're not common anymore. So I don't think it's something that is likely to arise in a case. It's, it could, but it's not very likely anymore. Okay, thank you, Ali. So, of course, as most of us are aware, the types and the frequency of the requests for evidence or RFCs that have been issued over the last several months has also been directly affected by the USCIS updating its deference policy. So more specifically, back in April of this year of 2021, the USCIS reinstated its previous policy to defer to prior approvals when adjudicating petitions which request an extension of the non-immigrant status if all other terms and conditions continue to remain the same. And so what they were really doing is to respecting previously, if you remember in the prior administration, they had removed the prior deference policy memo saying every H-1 case has to start from scratch. And so people who had been on H-1 status 5, 10, 15 years were routinely getting RFEs and denials and then having to pack their bags, sell their homes and relocate, unfortunately, back to their home country with children in middle school and high school. Well, that all should be hopefully a thing of the past because of the Biden administration's reinstating the deference, prior deference policy memo. The August 27, 2021 announcement basically reinstates the 2004 policy, which requires the USCIS to give deference to prior determinations, deference is def the respect, of course, when adjudicating extensions um, involving the same parties and the same facts, unless there was either a material error or a material change in circumstances, or the eligibility itself because the person or the employer is no longer able to sponsor the person, et cetera, or the USCIS has received some type of material information that adversely impacts the employer's or the applicant's ability or um, the ability basically for H-1B classification. So, TJ, I'm going to invite you to jump in and talk about the issues pertaining to the impact on the maintenance of H-1 status. 
Right. So this doesn't really have to do with the, you know, any adjudication trends that we're seeing, but just the impact of, of COVID on, you know, everybody, but also, you know, specifically H-1B workers. And, you know, a lot of, a lot of people now are starting to work from home. Right. And and for me, I can just I can work here. I can work there. I can work down the street. I can work across the street. I can work anywhere I want. And Murphy Law Firm doesn't need to do anything for me. Right. In terms of I'm not maintaining my H-1B status. But when you're in H-1B status, there could be negative consequences to moving work locations if certain actions are not taken. Um, so, so one thing, an amendment may be required depending on where the move takes place. So if, if a person moves from, you know, work location in Maryland, and for whatever reason, there's a COVID impact and they need to work from home or, or they need to work somewhere else, and it's, you know, they're moving from Maryland and they're moving to, let's say, New York. Well, that's a different metropolitan statistical area, and before that move takes place, an amended petition must first be filed. Um, now, if you're moving, you know, right down the street or somewhere that's in, within commutable distance of the um, work location listed in the H-1B filing, there's no requirement to file an amended petition. In that case, the employer simply needs to post the LCA notice at the new work location for 10 days, um, and the person can start working there. Now, the person can start working from the new location upon the posting of the LCA. They don't need to wait the 10 days. And then the employer would just want to memorialize their public access file with the evidence of of the posting. And since it's right down the street, same metropolitan statistical area, they can work there. Now, if you're moving somewhere that's outside of the metropolitan statistical area, but within commuting distance of the work location listed, you can also do this posting and and not have to file an amended petition. However, what I would recommend in that situation is to consult with a qualified attorney because there could be wage issues, right? You're moving from, you know, one place in New York City that is, you know, a super high wage and you're moving, you know, somewhere – in Connecticut or something that's maybe a little bit of a lower wage, but it's within commutable distance, you may want to talk with the attorney about what the the employer needs to do with wage obligations, things like that. Sounds good. Okay, so let me now invite Allie to jump into the issue and talk about the increase in the processing times for H-4 and H-4 EADs and what are the possible reasons, Allie. You know, I know that there's been a lot of changes in this arena. Sure, Sheila. So, yeah, I would say over the last, I don't know, maybe year and a half, maybe even two years, we've seen the H-4 processing times increase exponentially, right? They've, they went from, you know, your standard four to five months, maybe three, and now we're looking at upwards of nine months in a lot of cases. Um, this has been a huge problem for a lot of people, especially H-4 EAD holders, who are employed and want to be able to work, but they're having these gaps of employment because they can't work once their EAD is expired. Uh, This really started, I would say, around the same time that USCIS implemented the biometrics requirement for H-4 filing. They stopped basically giving courtesy premium processing to H-4s at that point that were filed with H-1Bs and premium, which was a great benefit for those H-4 holders, and now that's gone. So the processing time just got longer and longer and longer, and it's kind of stayed that way. Uh, That biometrics requirement has been suspended now since May 2021. Uh, The government has said, you know, for at least two years, we're not going to make H-4s do biometrics for their applications. So the processing time stayed pretty long for a while, but 
thankfully, we are seeing them start to speed up a bit. So we've kind of across the board, they've been really long, close to nine months. Now we're seeing them closer to six months in a lot of cases. So it's starting to get better. Six months still isn't great, but it's certainly much better than nine months, ten months or more. Absolutely. And in fact, I think there was a consultation I spoke with somebody maybe a week or two weeks ago who surprised me by saying when the employer uh, filed the H-1B extension for the spouse that the H-4 and the H-4 EAD for the dependent was actually approved at the same time based on the premium processing program. I know I haven't seen that across the board happening, but I was quite surprised when that happened just I think it was just about a week ago. So maybe they're coming back to the pre-policy uh, that existed pr before the prior administration, you know, making every possible excuse to stretch and delay approvals for people and H1s and H4s, et cetera, and EADs. So hopefully uh, this is a new trend and we're coming back to the way the world was, uh, you know, all along for, for decades with processing the H4 and the H1Bs at the same time if the premium processing was requested with the H4 EADs. But anyway, we have actually previously posted an article on Moosey.com to discuss a separate issue, the DHS, the Department of Homeland Security's consideration of a rule to, which would likely establish premium processing for H4 and H4 EAD applications. Uh, the regulatory agenda originally was slated for a release. They had told us it would be by September of 2021. Well, we're, on, we're in early November right now, but it has obviously not yet been released. This change would be a huge benefit to H4 and H4 EAD applicants who are running out of time on their work authorization, many of whom have lost their jobs because they filed it four months in advance or six months, and now it's 10 months and they've lost their job, jobs or they've lost their salary for several months and they depended on the second salary for their mortgage and car payments. Um, so hopefully that uh, will be issued in the near future, but the Department of Homeland Security, DHS, has not yet provided any update as to when the rule would be released, uh, but like everything, we're really hoping it will move very quickly. Uh, what about the H-4 visa holders trying to maybe uh, switch to F-1 or other statuses, or what, what is going on, TJ? Right. So lots of times you'd, you would have someone who is in H-4 status that wants to switch to F-1 for whatever reason. Maybe the, the H-1B holder that they're relying on is, is, is coming into the six years and not eligible for H-1 status, or they just want to go back to school and have the concurrent work authorization that goes with that, things like that. And lots of times so the, the H-4 visa holder will file a change of status to F-1. Um, you know, previously the process was, was significantly, and, and I mean significantly complicated, by USCS's requirement that the, the individual, individual file a, a bridge application to bridge the gap between their program start date, between the end of their current status and the program start date. So let's say you have a program start date for, you know, the, the, the fall term. It starts on September 1st, and your H-4 status expires on June 1st. So what are you going to do? There's this, there's this huge gap. So what, what they would do is they would file an, an 
an a, a, lots of times it would be like a B2 bridge application to bridge that gap. Or if they had eligibility to file the, the H4 extension again, they would file an H4 extension and bridge the gap. But they would have to keep deferring their program start date for various reasons, which, which would make them fi have to file multiple bridge applications, whether H4 or B2s, and it's, it's just complicated things. It, it, it made you have to you know, keep track of your status and when this expires versus when that expires. Then it got complicated with, well, what if the F1 is approved and then the B2 is approved? Well, what status are you in then? So it, it really just created a huge, huge headache. So luckily on June 20th, 2021, USCIS announced that it would no longer enforce this policy, which was Honestly, you know, to tell you the truth, a huge, huge relief. And instead, it reverted to its prior policy of only requiring the applicant to be in valid status at the time the application is filed and to maintain status to at least 30 days prior to the initial program start date. So if the initial program start date was September 1st, you would have to show that you maintained your underlying status through 30 days prior to that, which is what, about August 1st or August 2nd. Um, so this is just, you know, like I said, just eliminated a huge, huge headache um, that, you know, we're very thankful for. Absolutely. And I think it was primarily impacting those on, uh, like, the children who are aging out. The H-4 dependents mm -hmm. were primarily the ones switching right. from H-4 to F-1 to study more than spouses or others because the spouse was allowed right. to stay on H-4 status, just couldn't work on the EAD. But a right. child who was becoming 21 years of age in the middle of college, like, you know, as either sometimes generally as a junior or a senior, was then having to deal with this whole issue of, oh, my God, I can no longer be on H4, now I have to switch. That was causing them waste of money and stress and tension, and then you didn't know which date to put as the start date, et cetera. So I think that hopefully this, thanks to the Biden administration, reinstating the old policy of not requiring multiple B2 bridges and filing fees and then not knowing whether the B2 triumphs the F1 status, all of those issues, hopefully have gone away. So let's jump to the next issue about travel. Um, Ali, I know there's been presidential proclamations issued on by the prior administration, which the Biden administration continued, and there's specific rules for certain countries. So I'm going to invite you to touch upon some of those, if you can. Sure. So I think most people are probably familiar at this point with the presidential proclamation that came out earlier this year or really end of 2020, the fighting continued, which was to prevent certain non-citizens from entering the United States if they were coming from certain countries. Uh, and this included uh, India among them. Um, so if you were in, let's say, India for 14 days before you want to, wanted to enter the United States, you weren't eligible to do that unless you could get a national interest exception, or we're all calling them NIEs. Um, so... There were certain categories of individuals, right, that this doesn't apply to. So U.S. citizens, lawful permanent residents, uh, parents or legal guardians of U.S. citizens or LPRs, uh, they were pretty much exempted across the board. You don't have to worry about it. Um, however, for the people it did apply to, right, there were certain categories who were exempted. So it would seem, you know, you don't meet any of those first three or four categories, but if you were the fiancé of a U.S. citizen or F1 or M1 student coming in, you were also exempted from having to get an NIE before traveling. Um, the NIEs themselves, 
right? What are they? They were made available to certain individuals who could prove that they were doing things like uh, providing executive direction or vital support for critical infrastructure sectors. Uh, maybe there's someone who's directly linked to a supply chain. Uh, a lot of people most commonly were looking at people who were work, coming into work in support of COVID-19 relief efforts and some other varying categories. Uh, this limitation specifically directly affected a lot of H-1B and H-4 holders, right? These are people who traveled abroad maybe before they were required and then had a trouble getting a visa, you know, had to deal with the stress of can I get a visa stamp to begin with, and then now had this extra burden of do I qualify for an NIE, right? Can I fit into one of these exceptions or one of these categories and be able to return? And for a lot of people, that answer has been no. So they either are stuck abroad or they're here and they need to travel, but they know if they go, they can't get back in. So it's been a real kind of difficulty for a lot of H-1B and H-4 holders over the last year or so, or a little yeah, bit. And I'm, yeah, and so we're really, obviously, all of us, hopefully, the NIEs is a thing of past and we won't need them and they won't be under proclamation preventing people from across the globe or from a whole bunch, 33 or 34 countries from entering the United States. Hopefully all of that is gone because just a little over a week ago on October 25th of 2021, um, President Joe Biden basically announced a new presidential proclamation titled a proclamation on advancing the safe resumption of global travel during the COVID-19 pandemic, this proclamation dictates that beginning from less than a week from today, from November 8th, all foreign, foreign national travelers will no longer be required to obtain the NIE that Ali just discussed in order to re-enter or to enter the United States for the first time. Instead, all of these international travelers will have to provide proof of vaccination to enter, and in some cases, possibly a negative test, but as far as we know, it's primarily been proof of vaccination and less with the negative test, though it could vary depending on the country, because we are waiting for uh, additional details on that. So with that, I'm going to invite TJ to maybe jump into also, because there's been potential delays in visa appointments across the globe because of the pandemic and shortage of staff and people working remotely from home for the consular officers. So just a quick update on that, TJ. Right. So I think it's, you know, this is, a, you know, the, the abolition, for lack of a better term, of the NIE is, is, a, is a great positive benefit. Um, but it still doesn't relieve the, the long delays that we've been seeing in scheduling the appointment in the first place. Right. There's, you know, it's great. I can get a visa. I don't need the national interest exception, but there's no appointments for another seven months. That doesn't really do me any good. So that's just something to, to keep in mind um, when, when scheduling a visa point. What, what's, what some people do is, hey, I'm, I'm planning to travel in, you know, in February. Um, I've got my H-1B approval I, or whatnot. I'm going to go ahead and, and look at dates now and start scheduling my appointment now so that I have something available um, when, I, when I do travel, because it is something to be you know, taken into consideration. I had a client recently who tried to schedule in Canada, and there was nothing until June of 2022. Now, uh, different visa types, you know, different consulates could you know, have certainly different um, wait times, but it's just something to, to keep in mind that, that, great, no NIE, but, hey, you still need to get that visa appointment if you need a visa. If you don't need a visa, great. You can, you can travel on your old visa, 
um, if it's still valid um, and, it, and you're still coming in that same classification, great. But otherwise, just keep that in mind. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for that, TJ. And as you can see, based on the discussion that TJ, Ali, and myself just have had, you know, over the past close to 30 minutes, that, you know, on the one hand, it looks like the actual statute itself may not have changed, but in terms of regulations or policies between the prior administration and the current administration, in my mind, it's been a difference of night and day with the prior policy deference memo, the elimination of the travel, and the you know, no longer needing NIEs, uh, hopefully the H4 EAD regulation coming out for faster processing. So we are certainly hopeful that processing times for H1s and H4s will improve and that with this new change in travel policy that it will benefit a lot of people who are either stuck abroad uh, or who traveled abroad for what they thought was a short trip and have been stuck for weeks or months because of the inability to obtain the NIE from abroad. And as usual, we at the Multi Law Firm will continue to monitor and track this information to empower and educate each of you. I always talk about education, empowerment, and enlightenment, which is our goal at the Multi Law Firm. So on behalf of TJ, Ali Terry, myself, Sheila Murthy, and the entire Multi Law Firm team, I really want to thank each and every one of you for participating today for continuing to want to educate and enlighten and empower yourselves with the knowledge and information. And if we ever can help you, your family, or your friends with any immigration-related matter, please do not hesitate to contact us. That is what we do. It's not just our vocation and our job, but it's our avocation and passion to help people, to change lives, to make a difference in the lives of people, as we state in our vision and mission statement. With that said, I want to wish each of you, if you're celebrating Diwali, a very happy Diwali for those who are celebrating Thanksgiving because it's, it's celebrating each other and having a sense of gratitude and thankfulness. And we look forward to seeing you again next month in December and sharing our wealth of knowledge and information. Take care, stay safe, stay warm, stay healthy, and have a wonderful rest of the afternoon. Thank you. Bye-bye. This is a free service. The content is the protected, copyrighted property of the Murthy Law Firm. Unauthorized recording or dissemination of these materials without prior permission is prohibited by law. Learn about our firm, how to engage our services and more at www.murthy.com.